Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Julie Gould, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. This is the final episode of our series on funding. But just a quick note, don't forget that there's also a final 10-minute sponsored slot at the end of this Working Scientist podcast from the ERC. Now, throughout this series, we've heard a lot about funding. What's the best way to prepare for writing a grant? How to write that grant? How to make sure it gets read? How to prepare for an interview, should you have one? And then we looked a little bit broader at the funding environment. Now, one of the things that I found really interesting, if we look back at the very first episode is something that Elizabeth Peer said about what her research suggested. Given that top 50% of proposals, after you've already excluded the ones that really have no chance of being funded initially, uh, there really is a lot of randomness. But even more so, there's already randomness such that the applications that have been weeded out, so to speak, and don't get the opportunity to be discussed in the meeting might actually have a lot of merits. Had it been assigned to a different panel with different reviewers, it very well could have gone on to be discussed. So what you're saying really is that luck plays a very large role in whether or not your research gets funded. Yes, that is what our results suggest. And then add to that what Michael Teitelbaum mentioned in our fifth episode, that the NIH has experienced a period of flat funding for the last couple of decades, which has added stress to the system. In the 1990s was a decision by the US Congress and the presidential leadership of both parties to double funding over a five-year period for the National Institutes of Health a massive increase for five years, averaging about 14% per year, that then was followed by flat funding for subsequent years. As Michael mentioned, it's difficult to tell whether or not you're going to be in a boom-bust cycle when you're actually in it. But this prolonged period of flat funding might not be part of a cycle at all. It might be a new norm. And I think for a long time people thought this is going to be cyclical, And things are good, and then they're bad, and then they're good again, and and we just have to wait. But I I think it's gradually dawned on people that it's not cyclical in any kind of an orderly way, and that um, it may be the new normal for scientific funding, where there's a shortage of funding for the size of the workforce, and there's a problem with job opportunities um, for new trainees. And this is something that 
I think is belatedly being addressed. So that was Ferrick Fang, and he's a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle. And he, like many others, are concerned that the current funding system in the United States isn't working. So in a time when there's inadequate funding for the size of the scientific workforce and the researchers are spending increasing amounts of time applying for this funding, what is the best way of allocating not enough money to more researchers than the system can support? So Ferrick and a colleague of his, Arturo Casadval, suggest that a modified lottery system, like the one Libby Pierce suggested in the first episode of this series, could be the answer. And we came up with the idea of a two-tiered lottery system where initially there could be a review to divide grants into these two hypothetical stacks, you know, of, of high-quality grants and then the others. And the other grants could be sent back to be revised and hopefully improved, and many of them could come back and eventually enter the lottery. And then you would have the other grants, which are all judged to be of high enough quality to be supported, and then you would see how much uh, funding was available, and you would randomly then prioritize the grants, and you would fund accordingly. And you could introduce lots of nuances into the system, you know, in terms of the number of grants that any given investigator could have in the lottery. Now, as well as the benefits of reducing the amount of money and time spent on peer review, Ferrick and Arturo argue that it could have wider implications for the entire funding environment. And a school that had a large number of researchers could be reasonably certain, based on laws of probability, that they would get a a fairly predictable amount of funding based on the meritorious work that their researchers were doing, even though there would be little fluctuations. I think because of the large numbers, it, it would even out. Another thing you could do is go to policymakers and say, um, this is the amount of meritorious proposals that, that our scientific enterprise is producing, and, and yet we're only funding you know, a small percentage of them. And this could be the basis for making more rational uh, assessments of how much research funding should really be allocated in a budget. I asked Ferrick what he thought people might think of this modified lottery-style funding. I think... A lot of people's initial reaction to it would be that it would be leaving the future of the scientific enterprise to chance. But it's, it's no more um, irrational than, than trying to hedge your bets when you're trying to invest um, economic resources for your future and trying to figure out how to make a diversified portfolio. We really want to make sure that our blind spots in terms of our biases aren't preventing us from funding ideas that could really be transformative for society. In the- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Future. Now, actually, this modified lottery system does already exist. So to fund any innovative and transformative research, the Health Research Council in New Zealand set up their Explorer Grant, which operates as a modified lottery system. Now, Vernon Choi, who's the Director of Research Investments and Contracts at the Health Research Council, 
told me a little bit about their system and how it's working for them. So the way that it works is we uh, we do use a panel, but the panel does not discuss the um, the ranking of the applications that come through to us. What they do is they provide us with an opinion whether the applications are transformative and we do have a particular uh, definition of transformative so they must decide whether the, the application is transformative and they must also decide whether the application or the research proposed is viable so having um, reached the point where the panel agree that an application is fundable and meets the um, requirements of the Explore Grant guidelines, then those applications go into a pool of fundable, and then we use a, a random number generator to allocate the funds to those applications uh, using the random numbers that are then ranked, and then we fund according to that random rank uh, to fit within the budget available for that particular round. And how has this particular mode of allocating funding being received by the scientists uh, and the health researchers in New Zealand? Well, it's, it's surprising. Um, at the time, we felt that this was going to be highly controversial. Um, and in some respects, um, it was and still is. And, and, you know, obviously, there has been a continued interest internationally in the Explorer Grant, but from our point of view, our researchers have accepted both the the way that um, we allocate the funds and also the way that we um, determine eligibility or fundability. Uh, we did a, um, a survey back uh, in 2017 of people that had applied for the fund to gauge their uh, thoughts on both the format, the allocation method, the processes overall. Um, and basically, we had quite good buy-in from um, everybody. One of the things, and I haven't talked about this, but one of the things that we do is the applications are anonymized so that uh, in determining whether an application is eligible, um, there's no bias um, against any particular uh, institution or against any particular team of researchers. When the uh, process was first announced, um, we had a huge number of applications, uh, and one of the reasons uh, we were told was, well, this was a, a fund that uh, allowed young, inexperienced researchers to compete against senior researchers because there was no bias towards the experienced uh, researchers. The other thing that we've um, investigated is the gender balance um, in the applications because of their anonymization. And um, I would like to say that there was no gender um, bias uh, in these applications, but from our initial look at numbers, um, there is still a slight bias towards um, men. Not a huge one, only 3 or 4%, but it's still slightly different um, between men and women. Um, so that's um, difficult to uh, say why that might be. Um, Potentially, it could be the style of uh, text and the way that people write. Um, but apart from that, we're quite happy with um, the Explorer Grant so far. And I'm expecting that the funds that we have available to allocate this way will increase. 
So time will only tell whether or not this is really a great system and maybe expanding it further will give people a better idea of how it will work across a larger research system. But there are others who are taking different approaches and one of these was by Johann Bollen, who's a professor at Indiana University. He and his colleague Martin Schäfer, out of sheer frustration with the time-consuming and expensive funding system that's currently in place, thought, well, what if we just give everybody a pot of money at the beginning of the year and then implement a rule where everybody has to redistribute a certain percentage of their money to another scientist? So they've called it Self-Organising Funding Allocation, or SOFA for short. And here's Johan describing how it works. But essentially, you're, you're a young researcher. You've just been hired as an assistant professor. And uh, at the end of the year, you receive uh, a fixed and unconditional amount of base funding in your um, uh, research funding account at the university. And you know that the redonation fraction is 50%, which means that you can keep 50% of that. And then the other 50%, you'd have to donate to other researchers of your choosing. Um, you log into a website that could be run by the uh, National Science Foundation, and um, you enter the names. There could even be a pull-down list. There could even be, um, uh, I wouldn't call it a recommendation system, but an auto-completion system, where you enter the names of the scientists that you would like to donate a fraction of that 50% to. And uh, when the system has determined that you have completed the, uh, the list of names and the relative uh, fractions and it, and, it, and it adds up to 50% of the money that you have received, you hit submit, and you're done. The next year, you receive the same base amount and perhaps funding from other scientists that saw you speak at a conference or that, that read your paper and really liked the work that you do and would like to support it. You add it all up. Again, you take 50% for your own needs, for your own research needs, and the other 50%, again, you log into the website and you enter the names of individuals and how much money or, or a percentage of the money that you're supposed to donate that you wish to donate to them, and then hit submit, and you're done for another round. But how would you then decide who to give your money to? I mean, so you, you want to get rid of the, the time-consuming grant proposal writing. Yes, I know it, it can be a painful process. But then how, how does a person decide who to give their money to if they don't have all these grant proposals to read? This question is asked lots of how do you know who to give your money to? And, and the thing is that as scientists, you're supposed to know who does the most exciting work in your area. I mean, that's how we write our paper, papers. If you look at the, the bibliographies in our papers, our, our references, etc., they're essentially a testament to the obligation that we have to stay abreast of the developments in our area. You're not, you're not very good as a scientist if you don't know about the work that's happening in your your. Uh, in your research area. And so the, that's, that same assumption is true if people would have to make decisions about who to pass their money on to. And so the, you can actually show mathematically that under the right conditions, this, this process of the money passed, being passed from one person to the next will lead, could lead to a convergence of funding across the entire community that reflects all of the knowledge in the system, not just of one particular individual, but of all individuals that participate in the system. What would stop people from just funding their colleagues, their collaborators, or even their friends? First of all, I don't know whether that's such a bad thing to begin with. You know, people do collaborate, 
And uh, they don't just collaborate within institution, they also collaborate uh, externally to the contribution. But if you're really concerned about it, you could uh, uh, very easily enforce the exact same kind of conflict of interest rules that we have right now with respect to re uh, submitting and reviewing proposals. For example, you could, you could uh, introduce a rule that you couldn't donate to people within your same institution. And for example, that you couldn't donate to the same people more than two years in a row. You could even mandate that a given fraction of your money goes to under, underrepresented groups. So there's a lot of distortions, social distortions, that you could fix very easily by limiting uh, on the basis of very reasonable uh, arguments who to donate the money to. And what about the early career researchers? You know, those researchers that are just starting off in their career in science, how do they promote themselves in order to get some of the funding from other people? Well, first of all, everybody receives the same amount of funding, regardless of your merit or how well-known you are. Everybody receives the same base amount. So all of those young researchers have that base amount to begin with. Then, uh, of course, there's a challenge in, in getting your name out and, and convincing the community at large that you're doing good work. That involves going to conferences, giving presentations, getting in touch with your colleagues, these are the, the kind of things that young researchers do anyway. Uh, but now, of course, it would be crucial to getting their name out. So I think it would benefit the, the overwhelming majority of early career researchers. Nobody really knows how this scientific funding system is going to organise itself over the coming years. But I would be really keen to hear your thoughts. What do you think of this concept of a self-organised funding system or even the modified lottery system, which is already in place in New Zealand? Or have you got any experimental or paradigm-shifting ideas of how the funding system could be changed? If you have, get in touch. We would really like to hear from you. Something else we'd like to hear from you about is what series would you like to have on the Working Scientist podcast? So we've now finished our series on funding, but what else do you want to know about? Each series will have five or six different episodes with a variety of experts on that particular topic. But we'd like to get your input into how to shape our future series. So if you have any thoughts or burning desires about what you'd like to know more about, then get in touch with the Nature Careers team. I want to give one final thank you to everybody who has contributed. So that would be Johan Bollen, Vernon Choi and Farrakh Fang from this episode, as well as Michael Teitelbaum, James Wilson, Peter Gorsuch, Anne-Marie Coriat, Jernej Zupanch and Elizabeth Peer. Thank you again for contributing your thoughts and ideas to this series. And that is the end of this series on the Working Scientist podcast. But before you go, just a reminder, there is another last sponsored slot by and featuring the work of the European Research Council. And in this slot, we hear from the president of the ERC, Jean-Pierre Bourguignon, and then also from Professor Helen Tremlett from the University of British Columbia in Canada. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould. My name is Jean-Pierre Bourguignon and my function is to be the president of the European Research Council. I've been doing this, uh, I've been in this position for five years now and I still have one year to go in my mandate. Uh, the search for my successor has started. 
So, in a sense, uh, when you have reached such a level of success, the first uh, priority is, of course, making sure that you still are in a good position to continue with this success. The main priority of 2019 will be to revisit basically every way we do the evaluation because uh, we know we have some challenges. For example, for some of the panels, we have reached a size, which uh, means that uh, we have to think of organizing slightly differently because uh, you know to do a good job as evaluators, you cannot have too many applications because then you cannot dedicate enough attention to, to them. So we are really going to go over through a very, very thorough check of all our evaluation system. Of course, taking advantage of all the knowledge accumulated with the scientific, with the people uh, or members of our panels for evaluation, but also really trying to get advantage over not being too, too frozen, too rigid, or too passeist on the, the the way we structure these old. I've said we cover all domains of, of science, but science is changing all the time. So you want to be sure that you adapt to the new emerging fields uh, quickly enough that you bring on board all the right uh, competent people. Uh, so this is really uh, for the future, the immediate future, because that's a priority for 2019. And we want also to announce the new way we want to do the evaluation early enough so that the scientific community will be ready for when it will be put in place in 2021. Uh, and the scientific community has absorbed these uh, changes, understood them, and can really uh, adopt them. And in particular, that we'll be able to convince, to continue to convince the very best scientists in the world to participate in the evaluation. Well, first of all, I mean, open to the world as one of our motto. It means, of course, already that we have on board scientists from, uh, I think, about 80 nationalities. So it means it's not just Europeans who are part of it. But of course, another part is to for ERC to interact with agencies in other countries in the world. We have already 11 countries with which we have uh, signed agreements. Uh, for the moment, these agreements are of the type that uh, researchers from these countries, funded by these agencies, can visit and spend time in some of the ERC teams. So my name is Helen Tremlett. I'm a professor um, in the Faculty of Medicine in Neurology at the University of British Columbia in Canada. Um, and I'm Canada Research Chair in Neuroepidemiology and Multiple Sclerosis. Um, and I'm British, British citizen um, and a Canadian citizen, been here since 2001. I was part of a programme between the Canadian government and the ERC which enabled Canada Research Chair holders to spend time in the lab of someone who holds ERC funding. So it was a great opportunity to bring together individuals who have complementary skills um, and, and can learn from each other and, and develop collaboration over the long term. And it was a wonderful opportunity. I was based at the Max Planck Institute on the edge of Munich um, and they were focused on the gut microbiome in multiple sclerosis. It was so exciting. So 2011, I can even remember that day, uh, Nature published a paper and they were looking at um, the animal model of multiple sclerosis um, and how the gut microbiome may be um, influential in terms of triggering 
the animal model of multiple sclerosis. I had no idea that people were even thinking about this. Um, and this led me down a whole new research path. And, and now I'm actually coordinating or principal investigator on a study where we're collecting stool samples from children with multiple sclerosis um, and controls in, across Canada and across the US. And so it was thrilling for me to spend time in the lab um, whose work had really pushed me onto this path. So it was a lot of fun. So there's no additional funds attached to it, but it just meant that um, it was a formal opportunity and your, your salary was continued as such, um, you know, without a break. You didn't have to take it as a sabbatical leave or anything like that. And I was just there for two months, but it was a really great two months. But uh, during my time, we signed agreements with uh, China, with uh, India, with Brazil, with Australia, uh, with Japan. So, so of course, uh, these are countries which uh, worldwide play a very critical role. I should also mention South Africa, with which we have also developed a very interesting uh, collaboration. Still, we want to, for the future, uh, to, to actually be, have more tools. F for example, for the moment, the tools we have are only the ones I described, namely visits by scientists from these places to to visit uh, ERC teams. We hope that in the next framework program, some more agility will be given to the Scientific Council and having the possibility to also uh, accompany researchers from our teams who want to visit abroad. You know, one of the very simple principles of international collaboration is typically reciprocity, that is what you make possible in one direction should be possible in the opposite direction. For the moment, as you heard, uh, the, the only possibility is people from these countries to come and visit Europe. We would like also to help and accompany researchers from European um, from Europe who are, um, have gotten ERC, uh, ERC contracts to also be uh, helped when they want to visit uh, country, uh, researchers from uh, other countries outside Europe. Something we reintroduced very recently are the so-called synergy calls. So it's a different calls from the other ones uh, are really for individual uh, principal investigators as we name them. In the case of Synergy, it's really to encourage more ambitious, more global projects with two, three, or four uh, PI, principal investigators. Of course, the, the idea is not to create a consortium. It's really the idea that people come up with a truly um, challenging scientific problem they want to address, and we, uh, we call it Synergy because we want them to, to really convince us that uh, they are really the right group of people to, uh, to tackle this. So in particular, we see this as a very specific um, place where uh, pluridisciplinary work can be developed. Um, so in a sense, we wanted to create such a space where really people who uh, need um, really uh, resources, um, skills, uh, knowledge, uh, expertise from different fields can come together to tackle a very well-identified problem and to do that together. And uh, so this has uh, been, uh, we have run only one such call so far for the, for the year 2018. We just published the results, so 27 projects have been supported. I didn't mention globally the number of projects we have supported. We are typically at 9,000 projects overall supported. But the Synergy project is for us uh, 
a very interesting uh, new challenge. Um, so this is another dimension that TLC, the Scientific Council, wants to tackle, that is to acknowledge the great importance for the future development of research of interdisciplinary work, that people need to learn how to work together. But uh, the way we do it is, again, under the very strict uh, bottom of philosophy. We just want people to come up to us, uh, come forward to us with uh, ambitious projects uh, and very challenging um, problems they want to tackle and to try and convince the evaluators that they are the right people to do that. that they have assembled really the, the people who, who can uh, really do that in the best possible way. So this dimension of synergy um, is also that we want to be sure that Europe is uh, the leader to tackle some of the most challenging scientific problems. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.